welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, also known as Pretty Alpine Rose. Funny you should say that. Uh, Michael sign is Danny Boy. <laughs> Broadsword to Danny Boy. Broadsword to Danny Boy. Yeah, yeah, that's the one takeaway I have from this film. <laughs> Speaking of this film, Cam, what are we doing this week? Yes, we are here to talk about the 1968, kind of 1969, World War II military spy adventure film, Where Eagles Dare. That there was a lot of like descriptive words for how this film is. Like, so spy film, war adventure. film adventure anything else um character drama um romantic comedy um it has it all folks it has it all <laughs> it's your one-stop cinema shop that's right <laughs> body horror <laughs> <laughs> yeah one guy gets hit with a paintball gun at one point it's crazy <laughs> it has it all folks this is like contemplative science fiction everything Right, well, let's get our synopsis out of the way. Uh, Usually our statistics with older films is they're quite punchy. Right. But let's find out. Where Eagles Dare. One weekend, Major Smith, Lieutenant Schaefer, and a beautiful blonde named Mary decided to win World War II. World War II is raging, and an American general has been captured and is being held hostage in Schloss Adler a Bavarian castle that's nearly impossible to breach. It's up to a group of skilled allied soldiers to liberate the general before it's too late. Yeah, I like it. It's to the point. I, I, I like the little bits of detail in there. That's, a, uh, that's a, I think, an A- minus for me. Really? It's a little bit of a winding road. I think I, I quite like the first uh, part of it, really, where it just says decides to win World War II. That's enough for a back of a DVD box set for me. Sometimes the joy is the winding road, Scott. And there was plenty of winding roads in this film. I mean, what the guys at home won't hear is me butchering Schloss Adler three times when I was trying to record this. <laughs> That's also true. I'm going to uh, just uh, keep those actually in the actual edit. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready, because I've actually got the actual name of the place, and it's even longer. <laughs> You're just going to really annoy all the uh, residents of Schloss Adler. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to apologize to our German-speaking and our Austrian friends ahead of time. Maybe just apologize to all the listeners, period. <laughs> You're right. It's 2021. It's a new leaf for us. I apologize wholeheartedly and unreservedly for basically everything I've ever done. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, well, I hadn't seen this film, as which seems to be the story most weeks can, but uh, had you seen this film at all? I had, actually. Um, so back... Maybe eight to ten years ago, I went on a whole run of watching classic World War II movies with a focus on a lot of the big, star-studded, man-on-a-mission-type movies. So I watched, you know, The Great Escape, Bridge on the River Kwai, Bridge Too Far, um, just a whole heap of them. Um, even like some lesser ones like um, Battle of the Bulge or, or Bridge at Remagen, or I'm, I'm butchering that one now, so I apologize to the people of Remagen or Remagen or whatever the pronunciation is. But anyways, it's, it's Romagen. Is it Romagen? Well, there you have it. I had no um, idea. That was a guess. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So we got three pronunciations. One of them's right. 
Anyways, um, I went through this whole streak of them and Where Eagles Dare fell into that pack. And at the time, I did enjoy the movie, but I think it was hurt by watching it in close, you know, proximity to, I don't know, some of the greatest adventure films of all time, like The Great Escape or even The Dirty Dozen for that matter. And so I think my takeaway was like, yeah, that was fun, but that wasn't as good as, you know, the all-timers like Bridge on the River Kwai, which is maybe a little unfair to the movie. Um, But I think, uh, you know, uh, revisiting it was, I think, very helpful, I think, in a lot of ways, for sure. So what you're saying is you suffer from that sort of uh, Netflix binge watch fatigue where you basically forget what you've seen. Yes, that was kind of the case where I was watching so many of them at a time that they did kind of blend together. This one stood out because of, you know, the presence of Clint Eastwood. But um, yeah, it just, I think also, I mean, I think I started with The Great Escape. And The Great Escape is just an amazing movie. And I recommend the new Criterion edition to anyone, anyone out there that loves movies. Um, But you kind of go from the best to the rest. And you're like, oh, well, okay. You know, so it's kind of like starting with, I don't know, The Dark Knight. And then going back and watching some of the older Batmans and being like, well, I mean, I don't know. It's not the Dark Knight. (laughs) That was kind of the case uh, for me watching some of those war films. Stop lamping on Batman forever. (laughs) Well, there's a classic case. (laughs) Although uh, I would never compare Where Eagles Dare to Batman Forever. That would be cruel. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever made that comparison. So you heard it here first. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well... Do you have any sort of opinion on it when you saw it then? Or is it just kind of, has it just disappeared in your memory, basically? Just that I enjoyed it overall, but it didn't hit the heights of the other ones. Like, it just was like, oh, that was a that was a fun movie. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> that was kind of the case. I'm curious, had you ever heard of it before? Uh, I hadn't heard of it, which actually is surprising, because it feels like the kind of film that would play on uh, BBC Two or ITV, um, for those who aren't. British people, those are sort of terrestrial channels that everyone gets for free here. I don't know what the overseas comparisons are, but basically they're like just play, they play movies during the day, um, like older films. And this mm-hmm. just feels like the kind of film that would get played during the middle of the week or like, uh, you know, um, like a Saturday night movie or something like that. Because it's, I, I, I probably have seen bits of it, but I have no actual connection to it whatsoever. Mm. So you weren't, um, you know, doing cosplay as the characters in this movie at any point in your life? Well, I mean, I am currently wearing a white ski jacket, but um, that's just winters in uh, London for you, man. Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, I, and of course, you know, we start all of our recordings off with broadsword to Danny Boy, and uh, then you never reply. <laughs> I think, uh, I think we will be from now on. <laughs> it's way more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, overall, I, I had absolutely nothing going into this, which I think may have helped me appreciate it more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. compared right. to what you went through, obviously. But Cam, I would be interested to know a little bit about how this film came to be. Yes. So the story of this movie really begins with the children, Scott. Mm-hmm. It's all about the children. They are the future. Yeah. <laughs> I'm blanking on the other lyrics to that song. I was going to follow it up, but I got nothing clever to say. Teach them the way and let them lead the way. I don't know. I can't remember what it is. Hold Anyways. them close and let them lead the way? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, Richard Burton at the time 
Um, very prominent actor, amazing actor, one of the greats of his time of stage and screen. He'd had a bit of a rough patch. He'd had a few bombs in a row. And he didn't really know what to kind of do with his career. But he said his um, his children were desperate to see their dad in a good old-fashioned adventure movie. Because, you know, Richard Burton's making movies like, um, you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, not the best, you know, family fair, I suppose. And so they really want to see their dad in like a cool action movie. And so Richard Burton, really, that's not his world at all at this point. So he went to producer Elliot Kastner for ideas. And Kastner was like, I don't know. <laughs> so he turned to novelist Alistair MacLean. Now, Alistair MacLean was a novelist who cranked out action novels that were being adapted into movies like crazy. He wrote Guns of Navarone, the novel. He wrote Ice Station Zebra. And so, like, this was a guy who at the time um, was kind of like the, you know, kind of like the Michael Crichton, where all of his novels were being snapped up for movies. Had you ever heard of Alistair MacLean? I had not. I had heard of his son, obviously. Oh, uh... <laughs> and which MacLean is that, Scott? Oh, John MacLean, obviously. <laughs> Clearly. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard of Alistair MacLean by name, but I am quite familiar with Guns of Navarone in particular. I was gonna, that, that film rings a bell to me, but again, it's one of those ones I've probably seen bits of, but have no actual memory of. Yeah, it's with Gregory Peck. It's a really cool adventure movie. And it was um, a favorite of Richard Burton as well. That's the kind of movie he was looking at um, when he kind of got this idea from his kids. And so um, Alistair MacLean was a Scottish author. Um he didn't have any other novels really available. They'd all been snapped up. The rights were all bought up by studios. And so um, Elliot Kastner um, said to McLean, why don't you write an original screenplay for us? And Alistair McLean was like, okay, I guess. And so he wrote Where Eagles Dare. And the term Where Eagles Dare is taken from a line in Richard III from Shakespeare's famous play, which I'm sure Richard Burton cackled over to no end and Clint Eastwood probably didn't pick up on I had to uh, I had to ask my better half what Shakespeare play it was from. I didn't know it was from Shakespeare, but I had no other memory other than that. But uh, yeah, I have Richard III written down. I couldn't tell you any more about the quote, though. Right. Um, and so they hired Brian G. Hutton to direct the film. And I was a little confused because Brian G. Hutton is not a particularly well-known director at all. And when you look at a lot of the big, you know, star-studded war movies at the time, you've got directors like John Sturges you know, who's doing them, who's one of the great talents. So I kind of was curious how this guy got brought into this. He had made a movie for the producers called Soul Madrid that I think may actually um, work on this podcast at some point, maybe if we ever want to tackle the oeuvre of Brian G. Hutton. But he had worked, as I said, for the producers. They brought him into this. And also, um, Brian G. Hutton was also an actor, and he had acted in an episode of Rawhide, with Clint Eastwood in 1961. Hmm. That's a connection right there. That's right. IMDb yields great gold if you dig deep enough. And absolute trash. <laughs> Very true. Now, Clint Eastwood was kind of in a curious spot. He was coming off of the Sergio Leone Western series. Um, he'd also done a couple movies, Coogan's Bluff and Hang'em High. And of course, had many years on Rawhide. But he wasn't quite the movie star we think of when we talk about Clint Eastwood. He was still at that kind of, I'm on the verge of exploding, but I'm just trying to take my steps carefully to, you know, get to that next level. 
And so he was kind of reluctant to do this movie because he would get second billing, which I'm sure at the time his agents were saying, uh, you know, Clint, you got to be the star, especially after starring in Coogan's Bluff and Hang 'em High. But nonetheless, he agreed to sign on after they gave him $800,000. Ah, yes, the old uh, slip him the parcel of money trick. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, like, the production was pretty rough. They shot in Austria. Um, it was very taxing. Filming was frequently delayed. There was a lot of blizzards, sub-zero temperatures, and potential for avalanches. And so it was not the greatest location. I don't know if it's, you know, up there with, like, Steven Spielberg shooting on water, you know, filming Jaws. But uh, it doesn't sound like it was the most fun shoot of all time. Well, um, we've potentially picked a really good time of the year to release this episode because this movie makes you feel cold. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's strange how that. It, I don't know. It must be a cinematography thing, but I genuinely felt chilly. Oh, I thought you meant from all the violence. It made me feel emotionally cold. Oh no, I'm dead inside. <laughs> don't worry. Another thing worth pointing out about this production, too, is that famed stuntman Yakima Knut was hired to design and direct the action sequences. And this guy was a big deal. Uh, He had uh, worked on the chariot race in Ben-Hur and also worked on the battle scenes in Spartacus. So this really was bringing in the best of the best to put together their action scenes. And I do think it's fairly evident in the film. There was so much dangerous stunt work, in fact, on this movie that Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood referred to it as where doubles dare because their stunt doubles did most of the movie. <laughs> I, uh, I watched it. I, I don't really like to talk about the film until we get past this bit, but like I watched a Blu-ray version of it, like a high definition version. And there were so many shots where I was like, Oh, that's clearly a double. That's clearly a double. There's people who like, I'm pretty sure there was a guy in a blonde wig at one point. There was a point where I was looking directly at the faces of the two protagonists, um, and I'm like trying to figure out which one is supposed to be Burton and which one is supposed to be Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. Um, and so the uh, budget for this movie, uh, the numbers tend to vary online. It seems to fall between six to eight million dollars, and domestically it did seven point one. And overseas did a little bit more than that for a total of, I found about 15.7 million, which translates to about 108 million here uh, nowadays in 2021. So, um, you know, it was a, a reasonable sized hit. It's just that it cost quite a bit of money. Yeah, you can see that on the screen. It's all over the screen. And I said up front at the start of this podcast that this movie is a 1968 film, maybe a 1969 film. The thing is, if you look anywhere online, it's listed as a 1968 film, but that's really only because it opened in December 21st, 1968 in Japan, but then opened the rest of the world in 1969. So I believe in the UK, it was January and in the US and Canada, it would have opened in March. So it's more of a 1969 film than a 68 film. Is this going to be one of our accidental surprises where we release this episode on the exact day the film came out? Uh, That would be amazing. We'll find out, I suppose. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so the movie landed in the domestic box office at number 20, um, right between the Bob Fosse, Shirley MacLaine musical Sweet Charity, and another film called Alice's Restaurant that I've never heard of. I'm sure you're very familiar with Alice's Restaurant, right? I'm there right now. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Um, The top three for this year, you had number one was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Number two was the Disney film, The Love Bug. Number three was Midnight Cowboy. And I just want to make a note too, that number four was Easy Rider. 
And I think when you look at at least three of those, excluding the love bug, you see the way Hollywood is going. Like we are going into that 70s era of more character driven, gritty filmmaking. And that's why I find Eagles Dare kind of fascinating because it does feel a little bit like a relic of that 60s period, you know, just kind of landing at that crossover into 70s film. Yeah, I again, I'm sort of foreshadowing things I'm going to say, but this film reminds me a lot of True Lies. Mm-hmm. just in the sense that it's kind of a relic of the era as it's leaving that period. Yeah, you can definitely feel that sort of influence coming from movies that are almost a decade old kind of thing. You know, like the craze of these big epic war movies. Um, it wasn't like a long, long, long-term thing. It kind of fell between 10 or 15 years, but it feels like this is kind of landing near the end. There's more to come but I feel like the ones in the future, they don't have the level of prestige or budget attached to them that like this one does. Well, they still make them now. Oh, of course. Yeah, they had a big revival, though, in the wake of Saving Private Ryan, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. But I, I know yeah. like in, in the UK, at least, films like this sort of war films were, again, films that got played a lot on, on UK television. I'm just genuinely surprised I never caught this film. Some other movies that appeared on the you know top 100 of that year. At number 11, you had Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, George Lazenby's entry in the Bond canon. Yes. And at number 22, you had the Hitchcock film Topaz, a movie I can't wait for us to tackle on this podcast at one day in the future. And I can't tell if that's a good or a bad thing. You'll find out. <laughs> oh, <Ooh. laughs> um, A couple other little notes on this one, just off the box office performance. This is Steven Spielberg's all-time favorite war film, he says, which I think is fascinating. Um, I would have thought he'd be drawn more towards, say, Bridge on the River Kwai or something like that, but that's the quote. That's interesting, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in that and come back to it later because there's a note I want to touch on, and that might connect to it. Yeah, I have a note on that as well. So uh, I, I just thought that was interesting. Um, as for Richard Burton, this would be his last box office hit. Going forward, he would do some respected work for sure, but he would never again really hit the heights of being sort of the box office leading man that this movie marked the end of the passing of the torch going on because Clint Eastwood past this movie becomes a phenomenon and Richard Burton settles into, you know, very respected character parts. Um, He does try again to do this sort of thing in the future. Um, He did a movie called Raid on Rommel as well as another movie called Wild Geese that were these sort of World War II adventure films. Neither one of them landed very well. Um, But Clint Eastwood going forward, you know, the sky was the limit for Clint Eastwood. He would follow this movie up with a musical called Paint Your Wagon. And that movie would become a phenomenon. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to make a joke. I've never heard of it. Oh, it's no joke. Like Paint Your Wagon, which is a Western musical. um, It was a massive, massive deal with uh, Clint Eastwood and uh, Lee Marvin, I think. I was literally about to put my slack-jawed cowboy accent on when you mentioned the name of that film, and, uh, and apparently it was a really good film, so I won't, uh, I won't take the piss now. I didn't say good, <laughs> but it was popular. Oh, okay. I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Maybe it's great. I don't know. I just don't want to come down on one side or the other. Then saddle up, boy. Let's go. Yeah. So that wraps up the box office and the production for Where Eagles Dare. Boom. Well... Uh, let's get right into the, the meat of it then. Cam, you've seen this film, so we'll take a beat. Let's go with what I think, because I'm way more important. Of course. Of course. Um, I really liked this film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I 
I'm not a big war film guy. Uh, they have to be pretty damn good to get my attention. So, you know, the Saving Private Ryans of the world, things like that. Right. But um, this film, I, I, I have some... I have some I have some remarks about my feelings on some of the issues with the film, but overall for two and a half hours, which might be there with our our longest film so far. Um, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. I didn't feel two and a half hours. It moves, doesn't it? Especially once you get past the build up at the start of the movie. Like once they, you know, get into that enemy territory, it that movie moves. Yeah, it's it it's quick and yet you think of like someone like um, Lieutenant Schaefer, Clint Eastwood's character. He's as slow as anything. <laughs> he like just mumbles his way through a sentence every so often when he feels like it. Yeah, there was a little bit I read where it said that Clint Eastwood actually asked them to take dialogue away from him because he just wanted to play it more strong and silent, which I guess was a strength of his in the Leone Westerns. And so Richard Burton handled most of the dialogue for the movie. Um, I think it works, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my Clint Eastwood acting. How did it do? Very good, very good. Thank you. Applause, applause. Thank you. I'm th- I'm throwing roses. I was I was going to hope for panties, but okay, roses I'll take. <laughs> um, but they're pretty alpine roses. Ah, so. <laughs> yes, nicely tidy and well done. No, but um, yeah. this I really enjoyed it, and I just think it it moved really fast, and it was interesting. And the characters were quite interesting as well. And everyone felt mostly fleshed out. Um, what about you? What did you think? Okay, so I sat down and I watched this movie actually quite late last night. Um, irresponsibly late, really. I don't know why I started so late. But um, this movie is deeply silly. And I enjoyed almost every minute of it. Like, if you're going to compare it to the serious war films of the era, it does not. it doesn't even occupy the same territory. This movie is bananas it's crazy and i just had an absolute blast it is a triumph of stunt work and just pyrotechnics i think everything explodes in this movie everything yeah uh, (laughs) there's some interesting explosions along the way for sure and there was a point where i was sitting there in the first chunk of it going like oh was this a poor pick for this podcast like is there much spy craft going on whatsoever and then they pull out a magical triple cross we can go into later on in the episode where I'm like, oh my God, this is so perfect. And then it was just like action extravaganza. You know, True Lies is a good movie to compare it to, I think. And that it does wear the clothing of a spy movie in a lot of ways, but it's also just in many ways an ex- a, a, uh, excuse to just stage grand scale action on the biggest possible scale possible. And at that, it's incredibly effective. It's actually kind of surprising Brian G. Hutton didn't really go on to do any other like big, big action movies. I know he did another Clint Eastwood um, World War II movie called Kelly's Heroes that I haven't seen. So maybe there's some of that there. But you would have thought maybe coming off of this movie, it would have been a bigger deal for him. I just wonder if it was that, you know, entering into that Hollywood era where these types of movies weren't really popular anymore. And so he was kind of lost in that auteur world of the Coppolas and the Scorseses and all that. But Nonetheless, like I thought this movie was directed really, really efficiently, and I just had an absolute blast with it. Like I think of the movies we've talked about on this podcast, there's lots that are better, but this is up there with one of the most fun ones we've watched, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's right up there with Cloak and Dagger, I would say. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but uh, all jokes aside, 
very enjoyable film. I liked the characters. Um, and I also like the characters were written well enough that I understood people were bad guys and good guys. Oh, there's no simplicity whatsoever. Like this movie is not subtle in anything it's doing. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it, it, it hits you over the head with most things. But I'm, I'm going to pull out one of my reservation cards at this point. Okay. I had to watch it twice to get to grips with all of the double and triple crosses. I completely understand why. Yeah. Did you did you struggle with that at all? I did, yeah. And I think it's very telling that they have Clint Eastwood actually say how confused he is by what's going on. Because I think the audience was probably in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely a Lieutenant Schaefer throughout this film. <laughs> Just staring blankly, getting angry. That's uh, That's basically what I do when I podcast with you. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 it's not like I wasn't following it because there seems to be a running trend in our episodes that I, the, the more complex ones, I just get confused by, which is either an indictment on the writers or an indictment on me, and I'm going to leave it to listeners at home to decide which one that is. Um, Maybe that's an indictment on the genre though, because you know he's tackling these spy movies, and it is interesting how many of these spy movies genuinely try to baffle you and i mean look you and i when we're watching these movies we're taking notes um in the cases where we maybe are a little confused we're reading a wikipedia synopsis or something just to get it all layered out for the podcast mm-hmm. um we are putting in the effort to make sense of all the plots so we can talk about them on the show i would say the average person is not doing that at all so i would actually say a lot of these movies are written in a way where they're going to confound the general audience who's just going in for a Friday night, you know, eating popcorn, watching the movie, and then not thinking about it, walking out the door. And, and, and this film certainly has those elements for those people because it is an action film at the same time. Oh, 100%. I mean, I was actually surprised at how talky the triple cross aspects got just because the movie leading up to that would not have prepared me for it. But you think of something like Funeral in Berlin, for instance. Um and we'll be covering the the next film up in the Harry Palmer series quite soon. Um, that film has lots of double crosses in it. And yep. we remarked when we spoke about the episode that it does pay off if you pay attention to the film. I paid attention to this film and I still feel like I missed things. Well, I guess we're, yeah, we'll dive into the triple cross now because there's no way around it really. Um, and we can get onto the, that was cool. That was awesome kind of stuff later on. But so the, the setup is the Richard Burton character, major Smith goes in and he's going to lead a team of guys. They've gone in to reclaim this captured, um, uh, British general, George Carnaby. And that's the concept. But at a certain point, Richard Burton in front of a room of all the SS and the Gestapo leaders, turns his gun on Eastwood and reveals himself to be Johann Schmidt, which I'm pretty sure is the name of the Red Skull in Captain America comics, actually. Um, I don't know if that jumped out at you. It definitely rings a bell in my head. Yeah, and I think it's probably just because it's a generic John Smith, German version of that. But um, that makes sense. I guess yeah. the Red Skull has a generic name, yeah. Hmm. Um, but nonetheless, he reveals himself to be this German agent, and he's basically exposing... All of the the British slash American plan, mostly a British plan, to the Germans. And then he does a triple cross where he's now had them reveal the names of agents that are undercover working with the British that he can then expose. And now he's back to being Major Smith again. And all of this is done in a very theatrical performance by Richard Burton, where he really does to take center stage and just spout exposition for like, 
eight minutes straight or something like that. And the tables get turned over and over. And it's very difficult to keep track of the participants and all the names he's throwing around. You'd agree with that? Yeah, certainly. Because you you lose the three British soldiers or agents, I should say, who turn out to be double agents about half an hour into the film because they get arrested. So you're not even really used to their faces. Yeah, and I'd totally forgotten all of this when I watched this movie last night. And I had a note where I just um, referred to the the ones that were captured as the disposable five, like, uh, you know, that I think like three of them are captured, two of them are killed, but like I refer to them as the disposable five because I'm like, these people have no personality whatsoever. Like, I don't even know who they are. All, the movie's all about Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. And then you kind of realize, oh no, they actually tie in as a plot device more so than characters. And uh, this scene is really selling why these guys were so quiet throughout the movie and that they're all turncoats. They're all basically working against the british interests yeah and i once they sort of spelled that bit out and especially in the scene right at the end of the film where they unmask the main turncoat that is colonel turner and then uh, richard burton's character sort of tells you exactly what he did but it, it doesn't feel like you know when you go see a magic show and they they kind of tell you how it happened or, or something like that they kind of you know rip the mask off yeah have you seen those sort of shows before Oh, yeah, I've gone to see a few, yeah. Yeah, and you kind of feel satisfied with knowing what happened. This didn't really satisfy me that much. Well, it was so confusing. I think a lot of it you just have to take on faith that Richard Burton knows what he's talking about. Mm. And, I mean, the thing is, this movie is very simplistic in its storytelling in a lot of ways. Um, You know, the character setups are very simple. The plan is very simple. But then they throw in this here, and it's... There's no... It's not a movie, say, like The Sixth Sense, where when you find out the twist, you go back and you go, oh, yeah, you can really track that throughout the movie. Everything that's said in this room, you can go back and rewatch this movie. None of the lead up to that scene would really give off vibes that uh, this is what's going on. Would you agree with that, having watched it, you know, twice? Yeah, I would agree with that. I Because when I went back to watch it the second time, I paid special attention to the briefing at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe because I know one of the defectors uh, questions their orders, but really his questions are quite astute questions. Like, why are we going on this suicide mission? Yeah, well, they have absolutely no personality whatsoever, the uh, the disposable five. And they barely even have dialogue. And so they really are just like there for a plot mechanic as opposed to actual characters. Exactly. And the the closest we have to a defector that has some sort of a personality is the aforementioned Colonel Turner, because he's sort of popping in and out of the film. But even then, Mm -hmm. you, I mean, when you find out at the end, I actually wrote down, because my my notes are sort of uh, my thought process as I go through a film. And I look back and my third note was, am I supposed to be suspicious of Colonel Turner? Oh, interesting. I didn't pick up on Colonel Turner being a potential, um, you know, embedded German agent in this film um, at all. Well, he he just had that um, that Uramov stench about him. <laughs> you know what? I actually did make a note that I was like, does this guy get the Uramov award? Because he's the closest I can find. Uh, absolutely. I mean, did you see his uh, lip sweat at the end of the film? I did. I did. And... I mean, there's a great reveal there where he's got a gun trained on them and they're like, oh, we already knew. There's no, uh, the, the firing pin on that gun doesn't work. <laughs> it's like, okay, perfect. It's a great, it's a, it's a classic trope that's used in all sorts of things. I saw it recently when I rewatched Casino Royale. Right. 
Um, that's used at the start of the film. I love that little trick. I didn't see that coming, to be fair. I thought he actually did have them up against the wall for a minute. And, you know, Eastwood would pull out a gun out of his side holster and just like pap him in the side. But uh, that was good. Now, I have a question because we've talked about this, you know, triple cross that Richard Burton's character does and that it is somewhat confusing and that there's not a lot of ground laid for this reveal. Does it matter? I suppose it matters if you're one of these people, I suppose like us, but that we make a podcast, so we are critical. Uh, if you're one of these people that goes to see films to have a, a, a to have a complete story laid out in front of you that makes sense and that critically analyzes the film that you go to see. But I know because it genuinely represents me most of the time. I go to cinema most of the time just to be astounded by the spectacle and enjoy a story um so i think on that level on that base level it achieves its goal but if you do unfortunately it's all that sort of veneer if you dig any deeper than that it starts to fall apart for me it's tough because it is such a meat and potatoes action movie like it's not trying to be sophisticated at all um you know other examples of the genre would try for a little more sophistication this one is a full-blown just pyrotechnic orgy. And a lot of the spy craft stuff is there mostly as set dressing in the way it is in some of the more superhero like James Bond films. But like you are right, like a lot of exposition is given in these scenes with um, with Richard Burton explaining what's going on that I wish I could have tracked it more throughout the movie. But then like the movie is also not particularly committing to it in terms of the overall scope of the film. Anyway, the movie is saying we're an adventure film. We're an action film. This sort of thing is more just to kind of make the audience go, wait, what? Oh, exactly. And one thing I noted down in my notes was a lot of films have this sort of, uh, in they, they write these characters in that doesn't know anything about the world they're going into. And so you, the, the audience is supposed to see the world through their eyes and they will ask the questions that the audience wants asked for them. Um, and I suppose that's meant to be the Lieutenant Schaefer character. He is very much, I think, the audience. Because there's another character played by Mary Yer, um, who shows up as a blonde agent. And that had me a little confused at the start too because you have them landing um, you know, in the, uh, the frozen Austria and the guys all go to a cabin Richard Burton ducks out and um, this character, Mary Ellison is waiting for him basically in the bike, the barn or something. And we get the sense she's occupying independently of the mission as well with Burton. And so up front there, I'm going like, wait, what is Burton doing? And so I guess there are breadcrumbs throughout just in terms of the fact that Richard Burton's character has a lot going on that the other characters don't. But I do feel like we are the Clint Eastwood character. We are the ones kind of raising our eyebrows, scowling, and then when all is revealed, going, awesome. <laughs> I think that might be where the film falls down a little bit. Because unlike most people, I am, of course, a six-foot chiseled American male. Um, so I can, of course, see myself as Lieutenant Schaefer. But not everyone is Clint Eastwood. So I, I think a lot of people might have trouble putting themselves in this guy's shoes, who is like the world's best commando. Um, he's a stone cold killer in this movie. <laughs> I mean, okay, it looks like we're going on to it, but like, apparently, this guy has unlimited ammo, uh huh, and is invulnerable to grenades. Yes. Apparently, when he grabs him, it resets the fuse, like it's Call of Duty. 
Um, that that hallway scene where he's sort of defending them in the in the room, and he's taking on like whole battalions of of German troopers. Um, I I just thought like it just reminded me of like Hot Shots Part Two. Yeah. Where like he's just standing there with the machine gun imitating Rambo, and he's just getting the points racking up, and he just keeps firing. And then like I was waiting for um, Clint Eastwood to grab a chicken off the floor and fire it from a bow and arrow, or even just pick up a handful of bullets and just throw it at the guys <laughs> and kill them all. High score. <laughs> <laughs> that sequence is amazing because yeah, it's the classic. There's an entire battalion of Germans with like heavy machine guns too that they're setting up unloading and hitting absolutely nothing and then him just like ducking out and gunning down like 10 at a time it's incredible it's very star warsy <laughs> that i'm glad you said that because that is the thing i wanted to get onto i got major star wars vibes from this film you could totally see that george lucas probably would have been watching movies like this when he was coming up with the concepts of star wars absolutely you just think of like um uh, potentially in a new hope where you know, Han and Luke are fighting off the stormtroopers to try and get Leia out of the jail cell. And they're all shooting mm-hmm. down the corridor at them. I could see that scene and those Nazi troopers as stormtroopers and Clint Eastwood as Han Solo. Did you pick up that they actually have a line that's repeated in both movies? I did not. Please repeat the line. Okay, so in the Where Eagles Dare film, um, when Richard Burton's in there trying to get the radio stuff going... And the uh, the German soldiers all come in. Clint Eastwood goes, we got company. And in Star Wars, it's at, um, you know, when Han Solo is, I believe it's on the Death Star when Luke's trying to find Leia um, in her cell. And uh, Han Solo realizes the stormtroopers are coming. He yells, Luke, we got company. Wow. So wow, it's very similar usage. Like... You can say that that's kind of a generic line, but the way it's used in both films is very, very similar. Do you know, that is not the line I thought you were going to say. Oh, you thought use the force? No, no, the one no, 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 <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was thinking it was when Obi-Wan met Darth Vader in A New Hope and Obi-Wan walks up to Darth Vader and just says, take off all your clothes. Oh, classic. Of course. Why did I not think of yeah, that? Yeah. And he's just like, right here. <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I i did notice the star wars similarities which is maybe one of the reasons why i enjoyed the film or really is probably why i enjoyed star wars but also on top of star wars and you know uh, george lucas and steve spielberg are pretty good friends pretty tight friends in life and um i got heavy indiana jones vibes off this movie as well i mean there was sections where i was reminded a lot of the motorcycle stuff in Indiana Jones and the last crusade, or even just like the truck chases in Raiders of the Lost Ark, like the way the action scenes are designed felt very Indiana Jones style. I I agree. I mean, the bit where they started swinging from vines with the monkeys to get away from the lair was a bit confusing, but I went with it. Richard Burton called that the most undignified moment of his career. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. (laughs) 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 but that actually does lead me onto something that i did want to make a mention of and that is continuity much as i did lambast the film for maybe not giving you some breadcrumbs along the way or strong breadcrumbs large breadcrumbs i should say um one thing i did like is when they're escaping 
and um, Major Smith, Richard Burton's character, is is driving away in that school bus, which I still think is a bit of a bizarre sight. Uh, and he starts tripping over the mines that he set. Yes, that he'd planned at the beginning of the film, and it was. I remember seeing Clint Eastwood setting up the booby traps, and then seeing Richard Burton doing it in the street, and just thinking like, why? Well, it looked especially weird because they were setting them up on the side of the road as opposed to it, you know, in the middle of the road where mm. enemy vehicles would be going. So I was really like, scratching my head over that. Um, I did make a note um, to myself though for this movie that just says a lot of trip wires. <laughs> it's like they just invented them or something. They're like, oh, guys, you've got to get this in the film. Trip wires. It it feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Not that I have a problem with it. It was pretty cool. Oh, it was very cool. Uh, but. Yeah, just the way like the action is staged in this movie, it does feel kind of next level. Like I feel like a lot of the influence would be carried into these future movies, and a lot of this setup stuff really does feel. I wonder how much this movie is looking at James Bond, honestly, and just the the raised bar for action we're getting in James Bond movies at this point, and trying to bring that to the war film as well, because a lot of the action. There's lots of grand scale action in older war films for sure. I don't want to say there isn't, mm. but the way this stuff is orchestrated feels pretty. It, it works on a very modern level, whereas a lot of older action doesn't as much. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I did want to make sure we just sort of touch on the main characters a little bit before we wrap everything mm. up. Now, Richard Burton, this is probably my first experience of him officially. Okay, yeah. I maybe have seen him in other films, but they're not springing to mind. So this is the first film in my mind I've sat down and watched through that is a Richard Burton film. You're not a big fan of Exorcist 2, The Heretic? No, I'm an Exorcist 4 kind of guy. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Richard Burton is cool. Yeah. Richard Burton was just effortlessly cool in the sense of like he was planning his escape. He never really broke a sweat. He knew exactly what to do in every situation. He is the James Bond of this film. And he was rumored to be a, a original James Bond candidate, so it kind of makes a lot of sense too. Hmm. So uh, around the Doctor No time, yeah, yeah, he was, I believe, on their list. I can see it. He has that sort of stone cold look in his eyes too, like you could totally buy him as a professional assassin. Yeah, and it just feels like even in uh, the the midst of a storm, he was the captain of a ship. He would just be cool, calm, and collected, like a swan. I actually was really enjoying Richard Burton in this movie because I'm familiar with him just for a lot of his movies he made previous to this. He really was a dramatic powerhouse of an actor. Never won an Oscar, actually, but uh, probably should have. Um, you know, big Shakespearean guy as well. And I couldn't help but watch a scene of him and Clint Eastwood swing around <laughs> in a motorcycle with Richard Burton in the sidecar on an icy road. And I'm just like howling to myself. Thinking of Richard Burton, one of the greatest thespians of his age, shooting this movie where he's, you know, early on, not talking a lot and just like bombing around the streets in a motorcycle, running around with a machine gun. And ultimately in this film, having fistfights on top of like gondolas um, and just laughing at just kind of the absurdity of it, but also admiring that Richard Burton never winks at the camera. He owns this character. And I mean, he the reason moments like the big triple cross work, the reason that a lot of the stuff with the reveal of Turner at the end works is because Richard Burton, when called upon to actually act, just knocks it out of the park. You can tell that his character, Major Smith, is a man of conviction and he he dedicates himself to it. And especially when he delivers that stuff at the end in the plane, I just you just think, yeah, 
He knew exactly what he was doing and he had this all planned out. I would totally watch a prequel of this movie of him working with Mary Ellison on other missions in the past. Because I feel like how unflappable he is throughout this movie. I would say the events of Where Eagles Dare would turn most people's hair white if they wound up in this situation. But Richard Burton seems completely unfazed, which makes me really question what kind of missions this guy had run in the past. I oh, Don't get me started. I mean, would you ever jump onto that gondola? Not a chance. And I did enjoy just the the mental image of Richard Burton, thespian actor, leaping gondolas. <laughs> like, that is hilarious unto itself. It was great. I just, like, especially when they're coming back down and they're chasing the bad guys. And he's, like, having a fist fight, as you say, on top of the gondola with nothing but a pickaxe as his friend. I I would I would poop my pants at that point. I mean, this is movie magic because we are watching <laughs> not a physical actor really. Um, he's done some parts. I mean, he is in Cleopatra, um, so I think he may have had some battle stuff there. But um, he's not a guy known for like this type of action. And we are watching, you know, Burton hanging on this gondola. You know, I'm sure over matte paintings or what have you. And I mean, it all works seamlessly. Like the action in this is really well directed that's why i'm just genuinely shocked that um you know the director brian g hutton didn't go on to do more of this sort of stuff just because it seems like he can stage it very well yeah when you said that it was a surprise to me because it seems like he's quite a capable uh, director yeah i don't know i guess just wrong era man he should have broken through in the early 60s maybe yeah um so clint eastwood again another one of those actors i've not seen much of his work because I just tend to stick into genres he's never really been in. And I don't tend to watch a lot of older films, personally. But again, he knocks it out of the park. Yeah, I've watched a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. He That was another trend I went on, just watching all of the Clint Eastwood movies I could. And uh, this is definitely that early Clint Eastwood where he has that youthful kind of toughness about him. Although I don't know that Clint Eastwood was ever actually young. But he has that sort of <laughs> <laughs> that sort of youthfulness and that vigor that later on he would become a little more of that dirty, hairy, a little more like rigid and tough. Whereas I like that he has a little bit of that kind of that playful twinkle still going on in this movie. And I think it's a lot of fun to see, even though his character does just mow people down by the hundreds. And I believe this does actually hold the record for most Clint Eastwood kills in a movie. Oh, I totally buy it if that's the case. I'd like, I'm interested to know what the body count is for this film. It just scenes where he's like running up and knifing people, um, doing these silenced assassinations, you know, with a silenced pistol. Just like very James Bondy type kills sometimes. And Clint Eastwood is so convincing in every single instance of it. I mean, in terms of Clint Eastwood's effectiveness, I've already remarked that I don't think he works very well as that viewpoint for the audience, which I think is what he was meant to be. But as that sort of stone cold killer... I believe it. And you buy the bond between him and Burton really well for characters that don't really talk to each other very much about anything. Like we really don't know that many traits about these guys whatsoever. They don't talk about their backstories. They don't talk about their personal lives. And yet you buy the bromance of this movie. Yeah, they're absolute sort of brothers in arms in that sense. They respect each other's ranks and the organizations they work for. Um, I mean, you can tell that Schaefer understands that Major Smith is his commanding officer. Oh, totally. But I love the moment where Richard Burton has to scale up the wall of the castle, the um, the Castle of the Eagles, I believe it was called. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching Richard Burton 
scale this wall and just kind of snickering to myself. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know about this, but it's a lot of fun. It has that kind of um, Batman vibe, the 1960s Batman, you know, where they're climbing the walls. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but he gets up and then um, uh, Mary Ellison says, well, aren't you going to help up Schaefer or, you know, help up your friend? He's like, no, he can do it. <laughs> and I just think moments like that are a lot of fun. It shows the playfulness of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um even like a scene where they're in a car accident together and they've got to push the car over the over the hill and whatever with all the dead Germans in it. It just seems like these two have a camaraderie that just, it's just sewn into the movie and it just works instantly. It's like they talk about chemistry in movies and how it's this elusive quality that when it, when it happens, it happens. And these two have a lot of chemistry. Um, they may have more chemistry between the two of them than Richard Burton does with a Mary Ewer. Which leads us on quite well to Mary U.S. character of Mary Ellison. A character I think is actually really important and actually is very cool. Like for a 1960s war movie to give this much heavy lifting to a female character where she is a very trained agent who's going undercover, she's infiltrating the Castle of the Eagles on her own track. Like it's not anything to do with what Burton and Eastwood are doing. She's doing it on her own with the help of another agent. Um, I found all of that stuff really cool and the fact is, there's scenes at the end of this movie with, um, you know, the actress just mowing down Germans with a machine gun, you know, firing out the back of a bus. And I'm like, this feels kind of ahead of its time for 1968 69. Yeah, I mean, how badass does she look next to Clint Eastwood, both of them firing machine guns out the back window? That's an excellent point, actually, is that not only is she firing machine guns, she's doing it standing right next to Clint Eastwood, who is, I mean, he may not be a huge star at this point. But coming off of those Sergio Leone Westerns, he is an icon known as a man of action. And to see her standing there holding her own ground, firing these guys down just as well as him, pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. And I I don't know where we were in terms of representation with women in films, but I've got to believe that this is, is pushing the limit a little bit. I mean, I've watched a lot of these 1960s um, war films and these adventure war films. And I mean, uh, there's not a lot of very strong female leads in any of them, much less ones where the movie's actually focusing on their own intelligence mission. I mean, she has a whole side plot um, where she's kind of working this Gestapo agent named Von Hapen, um, known as the Major as well, um, played by Darren Nesbitt, where it's completely removed from anything going on with our main heroes. And I was just as interested in what was going on with her, you know, work there than what Burton and Eastwood were up to. And as you said before, you bought that she was her own spy on her own mission uh, with her own objectives. And they set up that, you know, her and Burton are lovers in some way. (laughs) Um, I guess they just have a a lot in common with their jobs and what have you and have worked together, I think, for three years, she said. Um, But the romance is very secondary. It's not like she's there to be the romantic interest of the movie. She has her own stuff to do. And there's another female agent named Heidi, played by Ingrid Pitt. She's working with Heidi a lot of the time, which is also really interesting to see in a movie like this. So I really did enjoy that character because, I mean, I could see another movie making a very lazy attempt to throw in that character. But this movie actually does the work to make her just as viable a member of the team as the as the two leads. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still plenty of, uh, plenty of room to improve her character compared to the, the male leads. Sure just in terms of screen time and things like that. But for where we are in time, I think a lot of screenwriters now could take this as inspiration of what they should be doing with female characters. I know, right? Like you 
have this ongoing dialogue in movies now where, well, how do we really write these female action heroes? And, you know, there's really good examples out there like Rey in the Star Wars sequels or what have you. But um, a lot of the time it seems this ongoing dialogue and it's like, you know, there are good examples that exist. <laughs> we have done it right before. Yeah, it's not rocket science. Yeah, we're looking at you Men in Black series. Exactly. Perfect example. Yeah. They have Rosario Dawson and piss it up the wall. Like, who does that? <laughs> well, to be fair, I think a lot of people at that particular point in time did that. It was not realizing what they had. That's true. And now she's Ahsoka Tano. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, like, just in terms of the casting, I thought this really worked. And actually, I don't know if you knew this, but um, the actress, Mary Ewer, was actually married to Robert Shaw at the time. And so, of course, Robert Shaw was the uh, villain in From Russia With Love, and he actually visited the set of this movie. Ah. That's a nice little coinky dink there. Yeah, yeah. He came all the way to Austria. Nice. That's, that's some commitment. Yeah. Hmm. He's just an upstanding kind of guy, Scott. Unlike me. <laughs> you wouldn't be flying to Austria. No, Hannah's on her own. Bye. <laughs> You're like, Sub-Zero Blizzards, I'm good. <laughs> i got the heating on. I'm fine. Uh, yeah. um, now, I, I would usually try and go through some more of the characters. But I feel once we get to the point of Mary Urate, now we've spoken about Patrick Weimark as Colonel Turner, a.k.a. Uramov, already. Mm-hmm. They're the top four build actors in this film. After that, I just feel like it's not really worth discussing. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, various German, um, you know, muckety-mucks who are involved in this plan. Um, they make decent visuals, but they aren't characters, and they're actually wiped out far quicker than I realized they would be. These are the classic cartoon Nazis and what have you and German soldiers of World War II movies. And that there's like no dimension. They're just kind of sneering villains. But I thought they were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott, I want to talk to you about some of the other action because this movie is primarily an action movie. And we've talked about the gondola fight. I'm just curious if there was anything else that really jumped out at you in this movie because Lord knows there's a lot of action. Well, I mean, I remarked on the hallway battle scene between Clint Eastwood and the rest of the Nazi army. Um... That was a good one. There's the gondolas. I think the escape on the bus at the end was quite interesting. That was really cool. Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad you bring that one up because there's some shots of Jeeps flipping in this movie that look incredible where you're looking at a Jeep full of soldiers that suddenly just like flips and pancakes them. And you're like, wow, like I'm sure they use dummies. That's how it was done. But it looks so convincing. Yeah, this film has a a bit of a passion for using mannequins. Um, I'm, well, I'm thinking of like the rope scene when the, that one of the uh, double crossing guys is told to climb down on the rope and then get shot. That was an amazing moment where he like falls and we follow him and it's just a dummy bouncing off the sides of the castle and cliff and then landing on the ground. I was like, oh, glorious. I love the old days where they threw dummies off cliffs and what have you. I, it's my favorite form of uh, comedy. <laughs> I love that sort of stuff. It's, it just makes me laugh. And those scenes, like you say, with the, the cars flipping over, I mean, not only were they well done and, and credit to the stunt coordinators and cinematography, but also like, you know, they're mannequins, but you buy it anyway. Right. Like you're on board, just not in that truck, obviously. <laughs> on board the truck. I loved the moment where they're in the car accident and the dummy goes through the windshield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, the only, only other thing in terms of like action scenes I did laugh at, and I actually watched the making of documentary after the, I watched the film, 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's towards the beginning of the film when they they've infiltrated the town, but not the castle. Um, and then they're back in their white jackets, and I think they're about to make their way up to the castle. Right. Yeah. Okay. When they when they when they blow things up and stage sort of a breakout, that's it. Yeah. And Major Smith is hiding in a bush, and then a German soldier sort of sees him. And you see him just shoot his silenced pistol up at the guy, and it hits him in the the neck. Do you remember that? Well, wasn't that Schaefer? I'm pretty sure that was Schaefer. Wasn't, oh, wasn't it? Schaefer? I'll take it. If it's Schaefer, it was. It, uh, that's fine. Yeah, one or the other, but yeah. Yeah, but what I laughed at is like the the explosion blood effect they used on my copy was so clear what they did, um, and then they actually referenced it in the making of documentary. It was a paintball gun. So they oh, wow. they were shooting this stunt actor who was playing the Nazi at point blank range with a paintball gun, and they did it like ten times. Oh my god, that would really hurt. Yeah, because it's literally right on the neck. And you and I have both played paintball before, so we know that that stuff can be painful. Oh yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pretty violent shootings in this movie. It's pretty crazy that it's like a PG rated movie. Is it? It would have been back in the day, yeah. They didn't have a PG-13 at that point in time. Right. So uh, it would have been PG, yeah. Okay. But yeah, overall, I mean, the, the I think the bus the, the bus extraction, let's call it that, was probably the next best thing to the shootout in the hallway for me. Just seeing all of our main characters doing their job and it all paying off for the, the, all paying off for the setting up of the dynamite at the beginning of the film was just great to see. Everything explodes in this movie. Everything. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I was waiting for like just an after credit scene where the plane's flying away and just blows up as well. <laughs> I was hoping at the end when they, you know, give Colonel Turner the option of going back to Britain, standing trial and being hung or jumping out of the plane without a parachute. Um, I was hoping that it would show him jumping out of the plane and then exploding partway down. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. I would have bought it at that point. I think in two and a half hours, it just become like, okay, sure whatever yeah <laughs> it probably blows up it's great um i but that actually led me on to one of my final notes i've got written down was that the most british suicide you've ever seen pretty british isn't it yeah excuse me gentlemen i have to jump out of this plane without a parachute oh yeah i was actually kind of surprised they didn't show him actually jump out they do don't they you see him uh it's mostly just from clint eastwood's point of view of just acknowledging he's gone oh okay yeah. yeah, but I—I I, I mean, I suppose maybe you just couldn't—you could allude to it, but you couldn't show it. Show it. I don't know. In a movie that will show you every single death possible, I thought it was odd to be so respectful in this moment. Uh, yeah, Nazi soldiers chain gun them down. Who gives them monkeys? But uh, <laughs> a, a British colonel. Uh, yeah. Oh, let's uh, let's look away, everyone. Avert our eyes. <laughs> um, I had a couple of notes as well. Um, the lieutenant nurse who's brought in to administer, I guess, truth serums to um, Carnaby. Um, she reminded me a lot of Rosa Klebb. <laughs> oh, really? That's not... I did write something down about her, but that's not who I thought it was. But then I suppose who I thought about is probably based on Rosa Klebb. Mm-hmm. Okay, who did you think of? I can't remember the name of the lady, but she's from the Austin Powers films. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Frau Forbissena. Yeah. Totally based on, uh, yeah, Rosa Klebb. Yeah, so I guess we ended up at the same point. Yeah, she just needed an eye patch in my book. <laughs> uh, I thought she was pretty amazing. She doesn't have a lot to do in the movie, um, but I would have liked to have seen more of her just because as a visual, she was very effective. I mean, the sequel when she has Colonel Turner's love child 
is uh, it's probably not worth watching. I don't want to watch that movie. <laughs> what, what's it called? The movie? Yeah. The sequel to Where oh, Eagles Dare. Where Eagles Are Born? I was going to go with Where Eagles Daren't. Oh, Daren't. Okay. Yeah. Is that even a word? It is now. <laughs> hey, we're writing films here. Wait, is the movie about their love child? Because my title makes sense if that's the case. I don't know. Darren is more like, look away, look away. Well, I, I wouldn't want to see the love child made. Fair enough. Fair I enough. mean, did you want to see Dr. Evil have, you know? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, I'm good. Mm. Um, <laughs> a couple other notes I had. Ron Goodwin's score for this movie is really infectious. Just the drum beat is really effective. I don't know that it's the most imaginative score possible, but it's a very effective one. No, I'm sure he's he's not ripped off, but uh, lovingly borrowed from several military, you know, marching tracks that they've used in the past. But it 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 propels the film. And I it does because I was thinking about the score and I wrote down it reminded me a lot of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, okay, which I I don't know if it was made by the same uh, person. It may be, but you know, there's a lot of use of like drums and trumpets. But then I suppose it's kind of like a military thing as well. Yeah. Um, I'll have to look it up. And just lastly, I want to say, why has there not been a video game based on this movie? When we talk about some of the great, you know, Bond potential for video game, how have they not made a game based on this? The movie is basically set up like a video game. Yeah, you could definitely see yourself uh, probably playing as Clint Eastwood's character and just gunning down tons and tons of Nazis. But then again, I suppose we did that with Wolfenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is it ever enough, Scott? I mean, I'm sure the Call of Duty games probably did this sort of thing as well. Uh, I'm sure there's no shortage of military action games set in World War II. No, they're always looking for um, story bits. But then, to be fair, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I noted down was in the Modern Warfare 2 mission cliffhanger, basically at the beginning of the mission, you're climbing up an ice face uh, and you're only using those little pickaxes that they use in this film. Oh. And there's a moment where, like, you drop down, you have to, like, use it. Like, you have to use your controller to throw the pick into the into the ice to save yourself and then climb yourself up slowly. And then you're infiltrating a, a lair and everything in that level. I wouldn't be surprised if they'd taken stuff from this movie for that level. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is a movie that probably played on TV a lot in, like, the 70s and 80s, mm. um, here in North America, at least. And uh, I'm sure it's had some influence, for sure. I mean, I I just mentioned Star Wars earlier on, so did you. And that was probably my last note, was I could definitely see vibes of, like, Inglorious Bastards in here. I could also see uh, Band of Brothers. Did you ever catch that? Yep, for sure. Because there is a level where they actually infiltrate, um, I think, yeah, there's like an eagle's nest or something. They Don't they do the same thing? Yep, eagle's nest, yep. Ah, there we go. Anyway, that's my memory working for once. But yeah, so they, I don't know if it's the same castle they use. But they do do the whole, like, going to a Nazi castle and taking it over. Yeah. So, I mean, this movie's definitely, I think, had some influence for sure. So my last question before we get to the, the knock list cam is for you, of course. Do you think this film could be improved by making it a bit more realistic? No. No, I don't think so. I think the cartoonish level of the violence and the insanity and the action is necessary for what makes this movie as fun as it is. So you, you think if we, they did a two and a half hour film with a bit more talking and a bit less shooting, it would just be just dull? I don't think it's where Eagles Dare. I think this movie is what it is. Well, okay, what would you at least call your more boring version of this film? 
where eagles cautiously proceed. And no one wants to see that movie. I, I daren't even see it. <laughs> okay, Cam, I think we've arrived at our destination. Does Where Eagles Dare make the knock list? Hmm. Now, this is a case where if the knock list was about deciding the great Men on a Mission World War II movies, I don't know that it would. It might. Like, it's better than, than a number of them, but I don't know that it's it's not top tier, like, you know, Dirty Dozen or something. But, like, when we're talking about World War II spy action movies, it's pretty unique in that regard. And I think it's very, very good. Like I really enjoyed it a lot. And I think people should check it out. I think I'm going to come down on a, Oh boy. I think I'm going to give this one a yes, because I don't know that there's anything like it on the list of things for us to cover. And I think it's a really insanely fun world war two spy action movie. Like, I don't know that there's another case of that, that I can really champion. And I think this is a fantastic um, case of it. So I, I'm going to say yes. What about you? I'm, I was worried about what your answer would be. Uh, because my answer is different. Okay. What's your answer? So, uh, my answer is tentatively no, but here's why Okay, and I'm happy to debate it, but just, I mean, just looking at your points, firstly, just because there isn't any other examples of this film doesn't mean it should get a pass. That's true. Um, and I think we have already said that the spy elements of this film, whilst mostly good, are a little bit convoluted and a little bit hard to follow. They are, but what about Richard Burton as an actual MI6 agent? Like, so much of it is driven from him being ahead of the enemies and everything. Like, we're seeing a guy who's an incredibly effective spy at work. Which is where my tentative feelings come from. Because I yeah. I genuinely buy Richard Burton's character. And I have to think, we let true lies onto this list. Yeah. So if we're going to let wacky action films that have spy elements in, I guess that we have to let this one in too. And it kind of sounds like I'm convincing myself into saying yes. And to be fair, a lot of the James Bond movies are also wacky action movies that have spy elements. <laughs> that is very true. I'm looking forward to doing some more of those down the line. But... In terms of Where Eagles Dare, you're right. There isn't anything like it, but I'm not going to use that as something to push me. Can you give me anything else to try and get me over the line? What about a character like Mary Ellison, who a lot of this movie is about her own mission, where we're actually getting to see side missions involving her and the Heidi agent as well, and the things they're up to. Like, there is a lot of espionage going on in this movie. Like, it, it is an action movie, but it is fairly heavy in espionage stuff, just not... It's just not portrayed flashy the way that the action is. The thing, that intrinsic thing I talk about with this film is that generally when I'm done with these films that make the knock list, if someone were to stick me in a cinema and like sellotape my eyes open, like in Clockwork Orange, although they don't use sellotape, um, and put all of those knock list films on, I wouldn't really moan. Mm -hmm. My trouble is I don't know if I want to sit through another two and a half hours of this film. I don't know. Like, to me, this is such an effectively directed action film that delivers exactly what it promises. Like, it's not trying to be anything other than exactly what it gives you. And it does it so phenomenally well that that's where I struggle more so. 
Okay, I have a question for you, and I think your answer will probably sway me. Okay. When you're showing the knock list to your kids, and, you know, our life's work, the knock list, right? And Where Eagles Dare isn't on the list. Are you are you kicking yourself in, in 20 years' time? Probably not. Um, I don't know that, I, that that would be, like, my great regret in life or anything like that. Um, but I, I would wonder if we missed the ball on that one a little bit or something. Like, it would, it, it, I feel like over the course of the knock list, we're going to have far more controversial choices. I mean, Born Identity, I think, was pretty controversial for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, Born Ultimatum um, might have been a little controversial as well, actually. Um, so then it's like, but like, I don't know. We have a dividing line where we're now kind of tackling where it's like, True Lies makes it in. Um, you know, some of these born movies don't like what justifies a true lies over a where eagles dare. And when you when you literally just make that argument, where eagles dare is a yes. Yeah. But I'm also just thinking of other problems I have with the film. I, I would like to sit through true lies again. I don't know if I'd sit through this film again. Okay. Um, but I think, well, I said to you, the, the answer to the question will sort of push me either way. And you said, ultimately, you would have some problems. So I'm going to go with a yes. I mean, if you want to stick with your no, remember, too, like, it's a, uh, we can stick, keep it divided. It just doesn't make it on. Because the thing is, though, like, I espoused at the beginning of this podcast uh, the amount I enjoyed this film. Yeah. And I did enjoy this film. I just think that maybe I wouldn't want to watch it again, but maybe that's not an indictment on the film. Maybe that's an indictment on me as a viewer. So I think I'm going to go with a yes, because I do recognize that the spy work in this film is mostly tremendous, if a bit convoluted. But the execution by the actors is great. So I think it's more what's on the page is the problem. So I, I think I've talked myself into a yes. Okay, so it's it's more of... It, this wasn't an easy and This uh, Eagles Dare had to really fight for its placement to get into the knock list. Just like they had to fight to get into the castle. That's right. They stormed the knock list at, against all odds. Uh, I'm going to take one last try at pronouncing the name of the castle. Okay. So it's the Schloss Adler. Or it's real It's, it's real word. It's, <laughs> it's, it's real name is the Schloss Hoffenwerfen. Oh, well, there you have it. Hmm. So, yes, it sounds like where Eagles Dare is making the knock list. And it's funny because Richard Burton knew all along that he was going to make the knock list. <laughs> and he got there in a very convoluted way that took an hour and a half. <laughs> Very true. No. Um, well, there we are. So with that revelation, the dossier on where Eagles Dare is complete and filed as classified. Now, Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a special message from Miles at the Disc Dump Podcast. I'm Miles from the Disc Dump Podcast. Do you have a mountain of DVDs, games, or music that you just can't decide what to do with? I do too, and the Disc Dump Podcast is all about deciding what you want to keep and what you want to dump. Do you like trying terrible drinks? Pumpkin pie soda. <laughs> and at the bottom, it says, y'all get your fixins. How about exploring weird ads for websites like Wish.com? Okay, so it's one of those silicone uh, torsos. And you get it right on the head of uh -huh, the silicone torso. That has an advantage on this one. <laughs> want deep intellectual discussions about the finer points of music, cinema, or game design? I have no idea where I am right now, so... Then check out the Disc Dump Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's Disc with a C, by the way.
and you might even hear our views on a particular item as well. So check out the Disc Dump podcast available on all major podcast apps. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, right. So Cam, what's up next week? Well, Scott, we're going back one year to 1967 to talk about the third Harry Palmer film, <sighs> Billion Dollar Brain Cha-Ching. I didn't, I, you know, I started off 2021 so high. I was believing in all the good things that could come from this year and literally week three i'm crashing down with harry palmer that's right and it's gonna be a party baby <laughs> there you go guys so yeah join us next week and your mission should you choose to accept it is to check out billion dollar brain and join us next week and of course you can find information about our knock list on letterbox.com slash spyhards and of course don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck. Up the Schloss Adler.